Hi everyone, I'm Larissa Grolamond, Assistant Curator of Manuscripts at the J. Paul Getty Museum, and I'm here with Brian Keene. Hi, Brian. Hi, Larissa. Um, we are so happy to be here uh, contributing to the MAA podcast series on multicultural Middle Ages, and I'll turn it over to Brian for a land acknowledgement. Well, it's great to be here, and this broader podcast series is asking us as medievalists to rethink our world, the world past and present, and Larissa and I are on the traditional, ancestral, and unceded territories of the Tongva, the Tataviam, the Shumash, and numerous other indigenous peoples whose presence here stretches back in time immemorial but remains vibrant today. And that's incredibly important for us to think about as scholars, to be unsettled in what might otherwise seem a very familiar world to us. When we think about the Middle Ages, we're often thinking about Europe and the Mediterranean, somewhere between 500 and 1500. But a land acknowledgement like this asks us to rethink our position and place in that greater world, and as scholars today working to tell new stories about a past that was always there and that has great relevance for our audiences. as we think about a multicultural global Middle Ages from the perspective of curators, we've both worked together at the Getty Museum. I now work as an assistant professor of art history at Riverside City College. How can we make these stories about a global Middle Ages relevant for our audiences today in light of all of the concerns that people have when they come into museums and classrooms? That's a great question, Brian. I think the way that most people come across the Middle Ages is through fiction and through fantasy specifically. So these stories are with us from really an early age and I think really shape our view of the actual historical Middle Ages. And um, so the project that we've been working on, The Fantasy of the Middle Ages, uh, which will be an exhibition opening in June at the Getty Museum and then also an, an accompanying publication of the same name, um, really looks at the theme of fantasy medievalisms. And these kind of fantasy stories, these fairy tales, these once upon a time stories that emerged in the 18th and 19th centuries, right when academics were codifying the study of the medieval world. Um, and so we have these tales of magic that draw upon historical material for world build building inspiration. And so there's already this conflation of fantasy and real history already in the beginning of the genre. And so when we think about the Grimm Brothers' whimsical tales to even Game of Thrones and really more contemporary medievalisms, we're thinking about a medieval age, a medieval age the Middle Ages, that has been continually reimagined for new audiences. And what we can see in those different fictions are little bits of truth. So we can see the anxieties, cultural relevance, the kind of social um, preoccupations that we have uh, in the modern day reflected back to us from medieval fantasy. I think the point that you bring up is a good one about fantasy and when it is that we first encounter the Middle Ages. Often when medievalists at conferences are polled, when were you first introduced to the Middle Ages and by which we most often mean the European Middle Ages, many might respond from childhood, precisely those stories, those once upon a time fairy tales that you've just referenced. And yet we're reminded often by our colleagues of color and by queer and trans individuals that we may not see ourselves in those once upon a time stories because they rely on longer histories that center Europe 
in a much greater world that had dynamic movement of ideas of people and where worlds were being created in the very moment when writers are talking about history, they're also reimagining their own past and present in relation to people. I know one of the books that we drew upon in our work was Maria Sashiko Cesare's book about re-enchanted, the early childhood literature from C.S. Lewis to Tolkien and the inherent whiteness underneath these tales. And part of our project in bringing these stories to audiences today is to tell new stories that have already always been there about knights of color, about women warriors, about queer relationships. In your continued work in the gallery setting, how does the illustration tradition that we've been working on as art historians relate to broader themes of narrative, of literary trends, and even film and video games? I think that's a great question because when we think about bringing these kinds of medievalisms into the gallery space to interact with medieval art, with historical art, I think that's maybe surprising for some people because they don't necessarily see them on the same continuum. But really, the kind of conflation of history and fantasy is really already there in medieval art and especially in manuscripts. And so when we're thinking about the book arts really kind of broadly across centuries, we're really thinking about the world presented in manuscript illumination, which is not a reflection of real history. It's, it's, it's bits of history, but it's also historical fiction in a way. And so there's already fantasy mixed in. And so we're not really thinking about fantasy or medievalisms recovering a real period, but they're referencing something that is already fictional. And so kind of teasing out what exactly um, those later medievalisms draw from aesthetically, thematically, um, even sort of culturally, they're drawing from a really kind of narrow band of um, illumination of a visual tradition that was really for the 1% was really for people with um, with great privilege, often male. And so we're thinking about things that were created for a really specific audience. And those are the things that actually shape later medievalism, um, which I think is a really important point because then we're thinking about, well, people are asking, why doesn't fantasy reflect the real European Middle Ages? And there's no reason for it to, right? I think you've helped me see this really clearly in thinking about these layers of history and fantasy. And if we step back to this point of what did people in the Middle Ages consider history, it was already, as, as you said, this blending of past and present with fantastical events. So we talk in the exhibition in the book about Alexander the Great. When you read the history of Alexander the Great from the perspective of medieval writers, they're drawing upon a long, already laid history of oral traditions and written sources from the classical world and specifically the Roman Empire, written in Latin, translated into French, in some cases by Portuguese writers, for an audience where Alexander's birth begins with a dragon. And then later, his male eunuch lovers are regendered so that the author avoids a bad example for his audiences. This is, of course, the Vasco da Lucena text of the feats of Alexander the Great. That would te text would strike us today as ahistorical, completely fantastical, because of these elements of narrative that have been added and the updating or revising of the text. And so you're right, when people today respond to casting decisions in movies or to episodes in video games that move beyond the Mediterranean as somehow not representative of a Middle Ages, they forget the fact that we're in fantasy realms already. Alexander is a historical figure, but has been given layers of fantasy. 
you bring in someone like King Arthur, whose multiverse of stories can include anything. If magic is present, then why not actors and characters of color? If dragons are flying around, then why not queer and trans relationships? And I think it's that balance to remind viewers and readers today that all of those things that now some segments of our population are reacting against as not being historically accurate were in fact there in the Middle Ages to begin with. Right. And so what we're doing with this project is not fact-checking fantasy medievalism. And I think that's been a really important point for us because we want to see all of these things in the realm of fiction, but we do have to acknowledge the fact that these kinds of fictional universes or sort of fictional retellings of a real Middle Ages does really influence the way people think about the actual historical period. And so kind of disentangling real history from fantasy history is part of the project, but it also, I think, acknowledges how coincident the worlds of uh, medieval fiction and fantasy are with history. And so when we when we present medieval history in the gallery, we are telling a story. There is an element of reconstruction that's already there. And so we're not trying to uncover a real truth about the Middle Ages. And I think that that's really important, that seeing something like Game of Thrones or Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter even, which like draw intensely on the aesthetics of the medieval as just as relevant for study as the quote-unquote real Middle Ages or the actual medieval material of, of history. And it's precisely getting beyond some of the tropes or stereotypes that people have about the Middle Ages, this period of castles and cathedrals, crusades and chronic diseases. Beyond that, there are these visual tropes that we've looked at in the illustration tradition of manuscripts, of printed books. And so when people have asked us, well, what is the real Middle Ages look like, whether it's from an Arthurian tale to Game of Thrones, and often we've had to stop and say, which Middle Ages? Whose Middle Ages? Because even in the Arthurian tradition, are we thinking about the possible historical Arthur of the 5th, 6th century, or are we talking about the Arthur of Chrétien de Troyes and of Thomas Mallory and of Edmund Spencer and of um, Alfred Lord Tennyson, all the way down to the present. When we think about Disney's version to other cinematic tellings of the Arthur stories, they're always for and about the moment in which they're created or retold, and they draw on whatever makes the most sense to draw upon in that moment. So your point about fact-checking is so good, and yet I think we still feel that tension in our own academic circles to justify the work that we're doing as serious. And it was something that even the Brothers Grimm recognized in 1812 when they began cataloging their folklore and fairy tales, they wanted it to be situated in a university tradition of serious, gentlemanly scholarship. And yet in their lifetime, they revised the text 17 times to respond to concerns about Catholic religion and sexuality, about childhood manners and upbringing. And so when we see and read these responses to updating fantasy or fairy tales for the moment, it's not new to us because we're so used to seeing it and we're used to seeing it all the way in the period of the Middle Ages. That's why I love the kind of um, contemporary takes on the King Arthur stories, especially because we're really talking about 900 years or so of Arthurian tradition that really does stretch back to the early Middle Ages. And so even by the 15th and 16th century, there's already several hundred years of the Arthurian tradition for writers and artists to draw on. And that is somehow sort of 
more legitimate than something like, um, I don't know, 2001 or 2004's King Arthur that aimed to uncover the quote-unquote historical Arthur uh, amid the, the fall of the Roman Empire. And so there have been these kinds of push and pull um, with, you know, taking Arthur as a, as a case study between the kind of... Um, fantasy version of King Arthur, which takes place in the 14th century, the 15th century. Um, there is that amazing Sean Connery movie that kind of sets up the traditional uh, love triangle between Guinevere and Lancelot and Arthur, really puts it in the high Middle Ages, which is, of course, ahistorical, but who cares, right? <laughs> and then there were these sort of more recent attempts to historicize Arthur. And Zack Snyder is even putting together now, it's not out yet, a more realistic version of King Arthur. And I'm dying to see what that looks like because I'm sure that it's just dirtier or grittier <laughs> than the kind of clean version of the Middle Ages that we're kind of used to seeing, which is really the 13th, 14th, 15th centuries in France and England. It's really kind of a limited view of what constitutes the Middle Ages in terms of the aesthetics of the Middle Ages. Well, and I think there's no debate among our mind that Sean Connery in 95 is Arthur, and the first night is, in some ways, our introduction to the Arthurian legend, even in addition to the childhood stories that we read and the Disney versions of the film that we saw. But we've had these questions arise amongst colleagues and friends how do we then respond when Netflix releases the streaming series Cursed in 2020 or when Dev Patel stars in The Green Knight in 2021, where we see this insistence on introducing a more diverse cast and in playing with this tension between history, reality, magic, the divine, and so forth. And again, I don't think we were shocked by these decisions. In fact, it led us to look more specifically at the presence of knights of color in literary texts. And I think it's in the visual tradition that you're right that we may not often see this greater diversity as apparent because so often these visual traditions from the 90s to today are often drawing on the 14th, 15th century French and English material, which are beautiful, which are brightly colored, swooping sleeves, pointed hats, uh, really upholstered and appointed interior settings with Gothic arches. And so it's not that gritty, dirty moment of the early Middle Ages. And yet it's been interesting to also trace the subtext of crusade that comes out in Arthurian tales that can, of course, relate to contemporary events between Christians and Muslims in trade, travel, and actual historical crusading events. And I think it's that historical mindset that we wanted to keep at the forefront rather than the insistence on fact-checking. But we have had fun fact-checking a few instances when Cersei Lannister, the queen uh, at King's Landing, talks of bringing elephants over the sea on ships, and we started receiving questions from visitors. Can elephants really travel on ships? Well, of course, we know they could because we have historical documents about Hannibal's uh, ships and elephants, and we had great medieval illuminations. So we could engage in the fact-checking as a way to kind of to be humorous, but also to reveal how our own field of medieval studies, as you said at the beginning, is itself a medievalism. All of these medievalisms, these kind of pop culture takes on the Middle Ages, are really in dialogue with medieval history, but they do so in a creative way that reinterprets the history. So there are these little bits of truth, I'll say, to be found in pop culture medievalism, 
in that they do really go back to medieval art, medieval literature, medieval fictions, medieval fantasies, really. And so there's this really interesting blend, I think, of of history with the kind of medieval mindset or the kind of creative medieval thinking that we're familiar with as scholars. And so to bring that to bear, I think, on medievalism in pop culture, I think is really illuminating for people because it it puts things in a different kind of context. These aren't just, you know, the more frivolous or um, unserious kinds of takes on the Middle Ages, but they do have, I think, so much in common with the spirit of the Middle Ages and the kind of reimagining of their own history. I mean, already in the 15th and 16th centuries, you have people looking back at previous eras with this kind of historian's lens even and reviving and kind of reenacting already um, in the form of jousts, in the form of um, sort of creative dress. Like there's this already happening. There's already the historicizing of, of the era happening in a period that I think we would consider medieval today. And so to look back at the 18th and 19th centuries, it's not so different, right? But they're adding their own spin, which I always think is interesting. And what is the spin that we're adding today, I think, is the the crucial question. And that gets us back to the idea of multicultural casting. And, I mean, there is still an uproar when things like the new Lord of the Rings series on Amazon Prime announces actors of color in major roles. People have a real problem with that. And I thought we were sort of beyond that. But then there was this, you know outcry on Twitter. Why are there black elves? And that seems crazy to me, but that's really a barrier for people kind of thinking about real history coming to bear on these fantasy worlds. But as you said, fantasy is fantasy. Anything can happen there. (laughs) If we're talking about elves, we have no historical elves to go back to, at least none that we know of. It is that kind of a, the absurdity of the critique. And I think we also saw that when after watching uh, the 2021 Green Knight and there was such pushback for the introduction of identity politics by the interaction between Dev Patel, uh, Sir Gawain, and Lord Bertilak. And I kind of laugh as a medievalist because, of course, that is one of the most historically accurate instances from the text. And I was a little bit worried that they would leave that out precisely because it would have been perceived as a historical. And yet they could have pushed it even further because that single kiss that he gets, well, in the story, he's getting kissed a few more times than that. And there's implications that maybe a little bit more happened or could have happened. And so the medieval boundaries that we've imposed either as scholars or as a world used to a kind of whitewashed or a Disney-fied clean Middle Ages that does center on the straight, cis, white, male, wealthy and elite Christian context is already absurd. And I think what our project has also attempted to do is to show instances not only of the interactions between broader global communities, but also of layers of fantasy that exist in other geographies. So looking closely at the Shahnameh, the Book of Kings in a Persianate context, that is also filled with this blend of history, of fantasy, that we can still read about fantastic flying creatures that breathe fire and that have magical properties in a text about kingship and lineage. In the same way we can look today at the way Arthur stories or Robin Hood stories are told in manga. 
that there are numerous visual and illustration traditions on a global scale that have picked up on a European medieval past, but have also attempted to reveal that there are other fantasy traditions that existed alongside and that tell us the same information about the concerns that writers and creatives had in their moment. Yeah, there's a real trend right now for young adult literature that really draws on medieval themes and are often reimagined versions of the kinds of medieval tales that we've been talking about. So things that draw on the Arthurian legend, things that are based on the Robin Hood stories, um, but which often feature gender-swapped characters or same-sex relationships. And I think that's really indicative of the direction that medieval fantasy is going and which responds to the demands, really, of a younger audience, which does, I think, seem much more um, embracing of these kinds of interventions into the medieval stories. And although um, many of those books don't have illustrations, they don't have a kind of strong illustrative tradition the way we would think of it, um, they're not pictorial, but they are really visual because they're world building, they're describing, and they really draw on these many centuries of the illustrative tradition. These are people, the writers, who are, are steeped in the same um, visual tradition that we are and we, who have seen all of the movies and who maybe have, you know, Disney's Robin Hood in their, in their head when they think about um, these different characters and, you know, the songs and everything that goes along with that. And to get back to the point that we made at the very beginning, you know, these are stories that have been with us for such a long time that we cannot help but be shaped by them as consumers of this culture as well as scholars. And I think engaging with this material on both a kind of fan level as well as a scholarly level is really important for reaching different kinds of audiences and reaching the public audience in particular. So I'm wondering, I think my next question for you is, how do we mobilize this kind of engagement into talking to new audiences? What audiences are we thinking about and um, how can this help us talk to them? Well, I think you've hit on a few important points already. I mean, we're talking about fantasy stories that have a global appeal. The Grimm Brothers fairy tale have been translated into numerous languages and have had their own long afterlife and tradition around the world from India to Japan and everywhere in between. We've seen even in doing the work on Tolkien and Harry Potter and Game of Thrones, uh, Wheel of Time, there are global audiences and the Venn diagrams of overlapping and intersecting circles are significant. These are stories that are quite familiar, even if someone has not fully read the tales. I think I had not fully read the Canterbury Tales even before beginning this project, and there are still sections that I skip over entirely. I think part of what makes this work so exciting is being able to be honest with a public that is deeply interested in this material about our own fandom, as you said, and our own nerd side. So to be able to talk with our colleagues in preparation at the museum about Dungeons and Dragons and then go to a design meeting and talk about Magic the Gathering card game to show that there is a kind of, I think you've described it to me as a sigh of relief that these topics are deeply serious in it from a scholarly perspective, but they also tap into the sense of nostalgia, of fun, of magic and imagination that is otherwise so often lost, and yet is always part of our scholarly process as we attempt to reimagine a past and make sense of it based on the evidence that we gather. 
that many of the writers and artists of the fantasy genre have done that same degree of research and that it is equally valuable. So when um, Soman Chenani writes his Beasts and Beauty, he is deeply steeped in the grim fairy tale tradition, but brings in all of these other elements about trickster stories and queer magic and the, the, the vibrancy of communities of color. So I think stepping aside as curators and educators and not seeing ourselves as gatekeepers to knowledge, fact checkers of authenticity, but participants in this greater practice of bringing a past to life that always was and always will be steeped in some degree of imagination and fantasy. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about bringing on board new audiences, we're talking about younger audiences, but we're also talking about people who maybe have not traditionally seen the museum as a place for their own interests, that you have to have this kind of specialized knowledge in order to come through the doors and look at the art and sort of have something intelligent to think or intelligent to say. And it's not that this material doesn't spark those kinds of reflections, but I think what's important about it is that it doesn't require previous experience. This is already so much a part of our visual environment. It's so much a part of our cultural environment that to be able to kind of reach back into the historical material and make those connections to contextualize it, but still respect the very deep knowledge that audiences bring to this material. I mean, there are people who are very interested in particular little franchises or certain aspects of this material that I don't know a lot about. And to kind of hear from them, like this very deep knowledge of Lord of the Rings or the kind of Harry Potter you know, wiki sort of fandom, which, you know, is so detailed and so deep and so um, extensive that I think that is really important, too, to sort of recognize that people will come to this material with a lot of knowledge um, and to be able to respect that knowledge without coming from the position of, you know, teaching from a perspective of, well, you don't know anything about this, so let me provide you this information. It's much more about working with the audience, and I think that kind of collaborative relationship is really exciting about this material. I agree, and to the point even about knowledge bases, I mean, we'll remember that Terry Jones, one of the members of Monty Python, was himself a medievalist, and so these individuals often do come with a vast amount of knowledge, but I'm thinking of another example that we've discussed before, my work as an Italianist centers on court traditions in northern Italy, 14th, 15th, 16th century. The Getty has a copy of Fior Furlande Primarico's uh, treatise on fencing. And I remember studying this manuscript in great depth, reading the Italian inscriptions, looking at the related source material. And it wasn't until working with uh, a colleague and neighbor to the Getty, Brian Stokes, who is a practitioner of historical European martial arts, that I got a better glimpse into this world. He not only understood the background and the biography of the fencing master much more intimately than I did, knew the court relationships of every son and generation that would have owned the manuscript, but could also look at the book in the way that it was made to be used as an instruction manual for the art of fencing. So we've talked as well in this project about live action role playing, about the Society for Creative Anachronism, about Renaissance fairs in medieval times as being just as important for advancing our knowledge of the historical Middle Ages and still contributing to a process of fantasy making and imagination, but seeing it as valid and worthy as the publication that you and I might write that could sit and gather dust on a shelf and might not have the same degree of public uh, 
um, reception as the hundreds of people that show up to LARP in the park and have a good time reliving the Middle Ages. Well, I think that point is so important because I think the kind of understanding of organizations like the SEA um, are among historians and scholars, the kind of thing that's like, well, you want to be able to dismiss the SCA until you need to know how a trebuchet works. Exactly. <laughs> or until we know how beer was made and how we're going to weave garments according to medieval fashion and sumptuary laws. Right. And so you need to have some hands-on experience with that to really kind of understand it. And so this idea of reenactment, which is itself a visual tradition and which has so much to do with immersion and experience um, and this sort of drive to want to recreate the medieval world, I think is something that we talked a lot about, not just in, in visual form, in the book arts um, or in art uh, or in the cinematic arts or in television, but the idea that we want to recreate an entire experience, something like the Renaissance Fair or something like medieval times, um, which is theatrical and which is dramatic and has, you know, a demonstration of falconry and this sort of triumphant music and betrayal and the kind of story that goes along with um, with the kind of narrative arc of the main knights who have this, you know, kind of relationship with each other. But then it's sort of shattered. The, the kind of uh, world of chivalry is shattered by this uh, interloper knight who doesn't play by the rules and who doesn't adhere to these rules of chivalry, but is ultimately defeated in the end. Sorry, medieval time spoilers. Um, but that that kind of goes along with this experiential, um, you know, kind of immersive experience of eating with your hands and pounding on your table to cheer for your night and the kind of acting that you have to do when you're in that space. And also at the Renaissance Fair, I mean, there's this whole vocabulary of castle speak. And if you're not participating in that, along with the performers at the Renaissance Fair, you're considered a quote unquote mundane. And I think that's such a good word where people who don't want to engage, right, but who are in these spaces anyway, it requires a little bit of a suspension of disbelief, a suspension of skepticism. Um, but this this kind of reenactment, which is attached to the medieval specifically, is such an interesting part of, uh, I think, the way that the Middle Ages lives in the modern imagination. And I think it's who has the authority then to bring that information forward, because we have also talked at length about the great gatherings of medievalists today at Kalamazoo and Leeds, and in those settings where the SCA is present doing demonstrations, medievalists do flock to see how to make a pewter pilgrim badge, how to use an astrolabe, how to work a trebuchet, or to see jousting. And yet when we sit in conference sessions, there's just the same sense of reenactment when we hear Latin texts read at length without translation. And I'll say that again, Latin texts read at length without translation is a form of reenactment. When we attend sessions on music and we hear vocal and choral performances, it's a form of reenactment. In sessions on conservation, treatment, and reimagining works of art, that is a form of reenacting, trying to get closer to the medieval. And yet, what we also remember and emphasize is the, mediev the medieval never was once. It was once upon a time and a time that continued to go on that each of the Arthurian tales that we mentioned had accretions over time. And so there is no one Arthur, just as there is no one moment for a monument like Notre-Dame de Paris in, uh, in thinking about its reconstruction histories. And I think that's what's also been 
wonderful is the fam familiarity of the medieval, but also the potential for something new. So we're, when we travel to Central and South America uh, and parts of East Asia and we see Gothic cathedrals, we recognize them because of the long legacy of Christianity on a global scale. And it's that sense of architecture being performative that we see in college campuses as well, that the medieval is always present and tells us something about our moment and gives us, I hope, some vision for the future. So in thinking about the work that we continue to do, Larissa, what and how can we continue to do this work in a way that is meaningful to audiences, that maybe pushes up a little bit against tradition, and that allows us, I guess, a greater freedom to be creative and imaginative the way Michael Camille was when he went to medieval times with Ira Glass on This American Life. How can we rekindle that sense in a new generation, but also in a generation of established colleagues? That's, I mean, I think that's the central question, right? I mean, we can see the reconstruction of the Middle Ages happening in all different formats. Um, we have, I mean, the continued popularity of things like medieval times, like the Renaissance Fair. There's always something new and medieval coming out on Netflix or a new reboot of Lord of the Rings coming out soon. Like, this is really alive in our culture but it's also existing in younger generations on things like TikTok, where there are these kinds of subcultures that are really active and which are drawing on the images and kind of stereotypes of the Middle Ages, but reconstituting them for a much younger audience and and anew. There are things like Hildegard von Blingen and Bardcore, which has been sent to me many times by my colleagues uh, at the Getty. Have you heard of this? They're like, yes, I'm all over Bardcore. Um, but this is the kind of reimagining of the Middle Ages, which I think draws on these many centuries of tradition, but is adding something that is really 21st century to them and is really contemporary. I referenced young adult literature um, before. I think these kinds of paths and these kinds of um, new directions for medievalism are going to be the things that interest younger audiences and which bring them into the field. And I think what we have to do is recognize that people are going to come to real, quote unquote, real medieval history with all of this experience. And so thinking about um, acknowledging those interests in a way that feels authentic and which feels um, legitimate, that this is not something extra. This is not something outside of our real field of study, but it's really an integral part of it. Uh, and recognizing that we can't sort of separate Game of Thrones from the real Middle Ages anymore. Like, this is not an option. Um, we have to deal with this material. And I mean, I do so with gusto and voluntarily. But I think that, you know, thinking about engaging students with the Middle Ages through pop culture should not be seen as something that we have to do or a negative thing. Or a guilty pleasure. Or a guilty pleasure. Yeah, these are not guilty pleasures. These are part of the field. And I think studying them and presenting them in both scholarly and museum contexts is the way forward. I fully agree. I mean, we've talked about this before in the context of the origin of facsimile making in the 19th century to the present, the invention of photography and the impact on the study of the Middle Ages. Another reminder from Michael Camille that so many of us access the medieval through digital and, and photographic surrogates. 
And your point as a real advocate for social media evilisms, as we've called them, this real engagement with the way in which the Middle Ages is presented and understood online, is able to bring a new audience in and also surprise those specialists. I think uh, the Instagram reel that you've done has, in my mind, gone viral as any, anything medieval can about witches and where do witches come from? And this idea of pointy hats and um, godmothers nursing a grudge and whatnot. These are intensely researched segments that you've created that force us to distill centuries of material into a minute's worth of content and receive incredible feedback from people who might think differently when they're at a Halloween store and see a pointy hat or who might visit Halloween.com and see the image of the badass female knight who's taking names today and is not going to sit in that tower anymore. So there are these resistances and pushbacks already that are in line with scholarship, but that don't have to meet scholarship and are in their own way serious and worthwhile. I agree. And so, Brian, I think my question for you is, how do we integrate these kinds of questions with our scholarly approaches? And can we see our scholarship as being separate from medievalism? Or do we need, this is a big question, but do we need to see these things as fundamentally connected? I think we do need to see them as fundamentally connected. And this is something that we worked on, but it's getting to that place of feeling confident in this study. Because so often when we talk to our colleagues about this project of fantasy, there's a kind of glazed look that might come over certain individuals or the whispered and hushed, I'm also interested in Lord of the Rings. And it's getting past that point of being able to realize that this is a field of intense study. We make that point in the book and say that as such, it is also fun. And that we want to bring that spirit, I think, to the classroom because that's not only a way to engage audiences, but I think it's also a way to be honest about the spirit of any past that we're talking about. If history is seen as dry, dull, and boring, then how do we bring it to life? It doesn't have to be just through pop culture, video games, contemporary novels, but realizing that Educators, curators have always attempted to bring something of the moment to our view of the past as an inroads for audiences. So I think whatever way we're able to do that, the better. Because we all know of our colleagues on social media, private groups and sites that will share the pop culture and talk about the excitement, but it's having the confidence to bring it to the classroom and to the gallery of a museum and see that an exhibition that includes Disney and that includes Harry Potter is just as serious as an exhibition about any of the topics we've worked on in a global Middle Ages, from your work on bestiaries in a global context to stories about trade and travel. These are stories that are relevant and that are interesting, and they're just as worthy to be alongside installations that involve witches, wizards, dragons, fairies, and all sorts of magical beings. I agree. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit about how the body of fantasy media has influenced people's view of real history. And so I think if we can engage fantasy in a more serious and sort of thorough way, we can actually start to change people's perception of the real Middle Ages. And so if we can sort of cast a little bit of a critical eye on fantasy and, you know, things like Game of Thrones have been criticized for being overly white, overly male, overly violent um, and presenting a really narrow view of history. But if fantasy can be expansive and it can be diverse and it can be inclusive, 
um, it can create the sense of equity, I think, not just in um, fantasy media and pop culture, but then also in scholarship and also in our field. And so I think these things are really connected um, in an important way, uh, which I think will have impact um, as, as we kind of move forward in the field and try to create a more equitable environment for younger scholars and um, thinking about whose middle ages these are, both in terms of scholarship and in terms of pop culture. I agree. And I think if we can give our listeners a kind of preview for the book and the exhibition, which will have their own lives online and we hope in social media, the projects begin with this tale of Arthur for every generation, a story so familiar and yet built upon by layers. We then wanted to go into a space about the medieval imagination to think about the ways in which fantasy and history coexisted in the Middle Ages. We then move into uh, the cast of characters of the Middle Ages and the way that those sorts of characters have become archetypes and even stereotypes over time, um, concentrating specifically on the figures of the knight and the princess, which have so dominated um, so much of fantasy media in the past hundred years, we'll say. And then moving from there into this sense of they lived happily ever after, where does magic come into play in a medieval historical context and also in the fantasy realm. And there we're able to focus on themes of nature, the cosmos, science, occult practices in the Middle Ages, and focusing on a story that might seem absurd, which is Disney's animated Robin Hood, that is, as we've decided, the most historically accurate Disney version of the Middle Ages because of precisely all the ways in which it builds upon the layers of talking animals, of a history bound in events of the past, and more. Then we move into the idea of staging the Middle Ages. So this idea of reenactment, as we've um, previously discussed in um, theatrical uh, venues like medieval times, and also these kind of immersive experiences like the Renaissance Fair. Um, and finally, ending with uh, the cinematic fantasy Middle Ages. So looking really at the legacy of medieval art, book arts, photography, all of these things through the centuries, how they inform and um, have shaped really cinematic versions of these medieval stories and what comes next. Well, what comes next is we hope that all of you as listeners and as colleagues in medieval studies around the world will be part of this conversation. And in our work to think about a global Middle Ages and a multicultural Middle Ages of the past, we hope that this work also continues in our journeys in the present, to see the ways in which the European Middle Ages are presented in other contexts, to see the way in which the term medieval is used in broader geographies from India to Japan and parts of the Americas, West Africa and more. The term and the idea of this past of 500 to 1500 has global implications. It wasn't the Middle Ages for everyone. In some instances, it wasn't the Middle Ages ever. And that's part of the journey of imagination. At the same time, we hope that you'll also bring out that inner child or that emerging scholar that sees all of these other phenomena in pop culture and gravitates towards or reacts against. There's enough room in medieval studies, I think, for that push and pull. I think so, too. And I'm really excited about the conversations that I hope this project will spark and the podcast will spark. 
Um, and so we hope that you'll be able to join us uh, either in person or online for the Fantasy of the Middle Ages. Uh, opens at the Getty Center at the end of June. And um, we're excited to talk to all of you more about these kinds of medievalisms. What are your fandoms? What are your nerddoms? What are you excited about? We're sort of so interested to hear um, what everyone's kind of secret medievalism is. <laughs> so Privy, go and enjoy some cider or mead. Fare thee well until next we meet. <laughs> Huzzah. Huzzah. This has been an episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages, an anthology-style podcast series brought to you by the Graduate Student Committee of the Medieval Academy of America. Season 1 was produced by Jonathan Correa Reyes, Rita Mera, and Logan Quigley, with music by Anna O'Connell. For more information on the Multicultural Middle Ages, follow the links in our episode description, and don't forget to hit that subscribe button to keep up with new episodes. <laughs>